good to be with you today. We're starting the last chapter of Philippians already. Philippians 4, we're going to be in the first nine verses today, and I will read that in just a moment. Philippians 4, starting at verse 1. Do you ever think about how vast the church is? Do you ever look around you in person or online or wherever you happen to be and see evidence of God working all around us? It's estimated that there are over two and a half billion Christians, two and a half billion people who proclaim faith in Christ right now, who live out the gospel in various forms every day. Two and a half billion. That's about 31% of the entire population. It's inspiring, isn't it? And comforting and humbling to know that the Spirit of God is alive, bringing hope and truth and love to people everywhere. Think about how many examples there are of what it means to be a Christian, along with an abundance of labels, Catholic, Baptist, Lutheran, Quaker, Evangelical, Orthodox. There are some very vocal followers of Christ, and there are so many who are more quiet about their faith. There are those who focus on good works, Others who put their energy into evangelism. Scholars who write books so we can think deeply about the faith. Servants who lift up those who have been beaten down by life. There are wealthy believers and some who are so, so poor. Christians are in every nation of every culture praising God in various tongues, some wearing beautiful native garb, outside, in cathedrals, in barns, in house churches, in sanctuaries of every size, people gather together to worship the living Savior. Some believers adhere to formal tradition and liturgies. Others are more experience-oriented with clapping and dancing and enthusiasm. We praise God for the mosaic of his people who live by his power and presence daily. All of what the church will be is unknown to Paul, of course, at the point of this writing. Reading this passage, we see how his words are for the Philippians, but also how necessary they are for believers in Jesus all over the globe from that time until today. As Paul finishes up his letter, he reiterates earlier themes for emphasis. And while his thoughts are rather staccato, going from a few sides to another without much cohesion, these are beautiful words. Beautiful words for all of God's people. One question we can ask out of this passage is this, brothers and sisters, who are we going to be? Three times, Paul says, in order to focus the, the church, he tells them how they are in the Lord. They're in the Lord. 
So matter, so no matter if your pastor wears robes or blue jeans, no matter what your doctrine is or where you where you live or what your cultural mores are or your political leanings or your denomination or how you worship, Paul exhorts the church to always stay in the Lord. And as we remember this, as we read this, we have to remember that Paul is talking to a church that is experiencing opposition for their faith. They are threatened by false teachers who want to change the gospel message for their own personal gain. Paul's own life is in serious jeopardy. But church, who are we going to be today? when life is hard, when there are serious obstacles and strife all around us, when the divides are deep and some parts of the church have become an echo chamber of society, who will we be? In times of uncertainty and harshness, when life is maddening all around us, when it seems like it must have for Paul that the Lord has to be returning again soon because things are incredibly surreal. Let us hear Paul's counsel to us. Philippians 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Lord, how beautiful your word is. And we ask God that we would receive what we need from you today and that we would know your peace. May we glorify you, God, glorify you and honor you with our teachable hearts and minds. Amen. Last week, Paul invited us to remember what it is that we've gained by knowing Jesus as we press on toward the finish line of our faith. We talked about those who have gone before us. It was All Saints Day and how those uh, people inspire us. The scripture reminded us that we are citizens of heaven before we belong to any nation on earth. One day soon, Christ will transform us when we enter 
into his glorious presence. What we read today is the beginning of the final exhortation before the closing remarks of the letter. Here, in affirming and direct language, Paul reminds the church who they are in the Lord and the vital choices that must be made to stay there. In this final teaching, we hear Paul's serious tone as well as his deep love for God's people. The bridge between his last thought at the, at the end of chapter 3 and the new one today is Paul telling the church to stand firm in the Lord. It makes us curious, though, because the idea had been of running a race and straining toward the goal. And then he changes it to tell us to stand firm. So which is it? Do we run or do we stay still? One idea I found this week from a Christian blogger said that one way we stand firm sometimes is to keep moving. If you think about it in terms of riding a bicycle, the only way to stay upright is to stay in motion. Have you ever tried to balance a bike on two wheels while keeping still? Pretty soon, you won't be on the bike at all. If you want to stand firm, keep moving. One way we stand firm in the Lord is to be in unity with our Christian brothers and sisters. Imagine that you are in the fellowship of the Philippian church. And Epaphroditus has returned from being with Paul and is reading this letter aloud so everyone can hear it. All of a sudden, you hear your name, along with another person with whom you've been having a dispute. An awkward moment ensues. It was a bold move for Paul to call out the two women in question, yet that shows how essential unity is in the church. Something is going on with Yodia and Syntyche, but it's not clear what it is. Here, Paul is pleading with them, begging them to get along, to find commonality in Christ. Now, in this time, most Greek women remained in the background. They had little to do with public life. But this is Macedonia, and women there were more involved because they had more freedom. Remember that Paul's first convert was Lydia, a businesswoman who helped to start the church. Now Paul says that these two women in conflict are co-laborers with him. He is urging the church to do what they can in order to help them reconcile. While we could view these women with judgment and negativity, as some have done over the years, we recognize that what is happening with them is something that we ourselves have probably seen or been part of. Because Paul is naming the issue, it's probably affecting the church. So it's not probably a personal argument, but one that could bring a permanent split in the fellowship of believers. These situations are painful, yet they occur because we're human, because conflict happens, because sometimes we're not healthy enough or don't have the tools enough. Here, it's among leaders. Yet what is so important? What is so important, we ask ourselves, 
that we should be estranged from one another? What issue is more important than our brother or sister standing right in front of us? Why is it that we have such a difficult time finding common ground and coming together in Christ with teachable spirits and humble mindsets? Listen to what Paul says in these verses. He says, the church is meant to struggle, not with one another, but side by side for the gospel. Sometimes when we fight, it's not about eternal issues. It's about hurt feelings and hidden agendas and a lack of love. To agree that our mission is to spread the gospel, that that is our core mission, it's a strong foundation of unity if we can agree to that. The church should be helping one another find peace in our relationships. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. Paul asks an unnamed loyal companion to help these women in their strife. There's accountability in leadership. Sometimes, sometimes all of us need to help facilitate listening and healing. Paul also says that their names are in the book of life. We have to remember there are no divisions in heaven. So we should find a way to work out the painful rifts that we have here. Because if not, the consequences are not just going to be for these two people who can't get along. The whole church will suffer. Our witness will suffer. The gospel will be impeded. This is a timely word from Paul, isn't it? The church is meant to be different than the world, yet there is an astounding amount of division among believers. Part of it is the politicizing of everything around us and being snarky to one another on social media, as well as trashing one another to those who agree with us. And none of this helps. We are told to not be conformed to this world. Jesus teaches us to seek his kingdom first before we get mired in the issues of the day. We don't want to place more importance on human concerns over the concerns of God. We are to speak truth in love, to give grace, to put one another first. The quote on your bulletin, one of them is from Johnny Erickson Tata. And she smacked me this week when she said this, Believers are never told to become one. We already are one and are expected to act like it. Preach, Johnny. As far as it depends on us, let us be of the same mind in Christ, allowing him to be the one to bring healing, being willing to listen to what he has to say about us. Disputes are never about one person. They take two people. So where is it that we bear responsibility for the arguments that we have been in? Let our practices go hand in hand with our professed beliefs. Standing firm in the Lord also means we rejoice and pray to him, which we see in verses 4 through 7. Rejoicing is a central theme of this letter. Paul, though, had little reason to be happy in his current situation. 
And yet here he is telling the church to always rejoice. Even when times are bleak or unknown, even when it seems as though the bad is outweighing the good, this scripture tells us to rejoice in the Lord. Jesus knows how hard life can be here. Jesus has our best in mind. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what tomorrow is going to bring. He is going to help us through. So often we want our circumstances to change before we feel like rejoicing. But that is not what Paul says. He says to do it anyway. Rejoicing then is an act of trust. Many of us are tired. We're impatient with the pandemic. We're working hard. We are election weary and sick of the strife. We want our kids to be able to go back to regular life, for the world to find stability again. Many of us are worried about having enough income. Others of us are filled with grief. Some of us are dealing with life-threatening issues. Many are dealing with blatant racism. Paul is not adding one more thing for us to deal with. He's trying to lighten our load. He's trying to give us an antidote to all the negativity. He's trying to help us be more aware of God's presence among us. And one of the ways that we are aware of God's presence is through rejoicing. Paul's not minimizing the realities of life. He himself is separated from his ministry work. He is unable to be with those whom he longs to see. He is subject to a powerful government who is unfairly holding him. The churches he has helped to build are under attack. Oh no, he gets it. His point is that we can choose to focus on the Lord, whose power is great, whose love is unrivaled. It's real for all that we have to endure here. We can always rejoice in the Lord. Paul says that the Lord is near. He knows what robs us of our joy. So he gives us the next step. If worry is taking the place of joy in your life, go to the Lord in prayer. Instead of fretting over everything that's wrong or what's producing anxiety in you, talk to Jesus. It's okay to feel stressed and out of sorts. It's okay to go and to talk to somebody who could maybe help you and give you more tools. Pour out your needs. Pour out your feelings. Give God thanks. Ask him to help. Remember how God is with us and will meet our needs. When we go to the Lord, his peace spreads over us like a new day as we breathe in his presence. At first, there's only a glimmer of light as we trust. And then we see more and more the cold gives way to warmth. Peace comes as we trust. There's a promise here that those who pray will have their hearts and minds guarded by the Savior. 
To guard is a military term describing a garrison of soldiers outside the gates whose job is to protect and walk and watch over the occupants of the city. He who watches over us doesn't slumber, nor does he sleep. He escorts us in our comings and goings. We have no idea the way that he defends us and shields us from the danger that's all around us. It's not possible for us to worry less on our own. We need to go to the Lord who cares deeply for us and knows us. Christ will meet us in our most vulnerable places because he understands our plights. He surrounds us with himself. He sees the condition of our hearts and how we long, how we long just to let it go, how we long to have someone understand us. Let's take a moment right now and seek the Lord. What is causing you anxiety? And what is it that you can give to the living God? He is here now with us. We ask with thanksgiving in our hearts. We ask not looking at anything or anyone except for him. The Lord is near. Let's just pause and take a moment and be with him. Jesus, we thank you for your peace. We thank you for who you are. Please, Lord, guard our hearts and minds. Thank you that we can rejoice in you as our Lord and Savior, as our Creator. You sustain our lives. You give us breath. We can rejoice in you no matter what, because you do not change, and we praise you. Help us, Lord, to know how to take the next step. Amen. Paul ends this section by reminding us to stand firm by focusing on the good around us. In verse 8, he gives a list of terms that would be more in line with the Greek philosophers of their day than with scripture. Some of these words are never again used by Paul in any of his letters, so it appears that he is reminding us of the virtues of the culture around them. We know that God's truth is found in all people. The world and all of us who live here are a mix of both the sacred and the sinful. This is a memorable piece of scripture that should be displayed in our homes and imprinted on our hearts because it's not something we always do, which is to focus on the good. Most of us tend to go to the negative, to what is complaint-worthy or scandalously juicy. We like to pronounce judgments on all that is wrong with the world or to make cynical jokes about the more painful aspects of life. Verse 8 keeps our heart, though, in the correct place and helps us to be better people. 
when I read this, I think a little bit about 1 Corinthians 13 to see how well it goes along with these words. Love always trusts, always protects, always hopes. Paul wants us to discipline our lives. Why do we have to be told to focus on what is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise? I think we have to be told because so often we are a condemning, pessimistic, dishonest people. And we don't offer grace to one another or even to ourselves. We're heavily, heavily influenced by the negativity around us. Where our mind goes is where we focus. When I was in elementary school, I was in a bowling league. I still have my powder blue 10 pound ball, which I take out when we roll a few games and I try to beat Mark Bates. In my little town, the bowling alley was a place to be. And in 1977, it was happening, believe me. I would ride my bike once a week after school and bowl my little heart out. One of the coaches, yes, there were coaches, told me in the beginning when lots of my balls went into the gutter that my thumb was turning when I was throwing the ball. At the point where the ball was being released, my hand would pivot quite unconsciously to the right because the direction the thumb takes is where the ball will go. Isn't that a great idea? Where our mind goes, is where our hearts and actions will follow. These are not easy days to stay focused on all that is good, but there is goodness everywhere if we choose to see it, if we choose to focus in as Paul is exhorting us. If the church isn't doing it, who's doing it? That's what we need to do. When we stoop to the level of our world, or when we allow our disgust to fester or overtake us, we not only lose our peace, but we've lost a key battle in our faith journey. Where's your pattern of negativity keeping you down? Our minds are always set on something and Paul wants us to see what a choice we have before us always. He wants the minds of those who follow Christ to be set on those things which are praiseworthy. Amen and amen. Stand firm in the Lord. Be of one mind in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Set your mind on those things which are from the Lord. These words keep us anchored in the Savior in ways that we really need. Paul's hope for the church in all times is to help create spaces where everyone can truly know God, truly understand and feel his wholeness and peace. Who are you going to be, brothers and sisters? As we press forward, and stand firm, we ask Jesus to minister to us as his body, to encourage and assure us. 
If there is something from this scripture that God is telling you to do or to stop doing, please take a moment to hear what he's saying and commit to following through on all that he is encouraging you to do. May we affirm one another. May we hold one another accountable through the word of God as we live out who God is leading us to be. Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.